till we get it right. All right, hey, we got a bunch of stuff in your programs today, so if you will, if you'll just pull out today the first part, just the 30-day <clears throat> church challenge. Uh, we're going to look at going into the world, and we're going to talk about uh, what it is in our, in our culture, in the mindset of our world, and we also have a, I guess that's paint, I don't know, purple uh, cards in there. We'll talk about that at the end of the service, all right? You ready? All right. <clears throat> so let me kind of set the stage here for you. Uh, we started out the 30-day church challenge, uh, basically laying out our values uh, as a church. And so um, the goal of a church is to make disciples. That's all Christian churches. We are to make disciples. It is a universal uh, uh, purpose uh, for all Christian churches. And so if you have your outlines, let's go ahead and pull it out. Let's look at it, and we'll work through today's lesson. So you have our number one. We looked at that in week one. And that is, what is the purpose of the church? Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, uh, came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, there, given to you, therefore go make disciples, right? And so then we looked at, well, what is a disciple? Because we had all kinds of different ideas of what we think a disciple is. In your outline number two, what is a disciple? Disciple means to be a disciple of one, in this case it's we're speaking specifically about Jesus, to follow his precepts and instructions. So the church, the, the mandate to the leadership of the church is to position the folks, you guys, to be followers of Christ, to follow his instructions, to follow his uh, precepts, his direction in our life. And so every Sunday we kind of gather and that's what we really push to do. We encourage you guys to grow in the likeness of Christ. And so we laid out from week one, we said, what if, and this is kind of the value system of our church, what if every person who attends Laurel Ridge is connected with God and connected with others in community groups, God in worship, connected in community groups with others? What if every believer in the church, in uh, Laurel Ridge here, was committed to grow in spiritually in their head knowledge of Christ that translates into their convictions that they have or their passions they have, for Christ and ultimately reveals his works in and through your hands. And so when we grow spiritually, we grow, we grow in our head, our heart, and our hands. And what if the church looked like that everyone who attended actually felt that they needed to invest in serving in the body of Christ? And we looked at that in week three, talking about the importance of serving in the body of Christ. We'll talk about serving Outside of the body of Christ today, but we're talking to week three was serving in the body of Christ. And then last week we looked at living a generous life, being devoted to Christ in, in, in the area of our finances in our life. And then today we're going to look at go. So our five core values that we have is connect. <clears throat> Did I just go offline? Uh, is connect to grow spiritually, to serve in the body of Christ to give generously, and ultimately to go into the world and share Christ with the world. All right? So we're all caught up to speed? Yes. All right. So <clears throat> let's kind of talk a little bit about the worldview in which we live in. The worldview is, in, in America specifically, is changing, right? Where America was founded as kind of a Christian, not kind of, they were founded as a Christian nation, that we would gather to have freedom of religion, that we would worship God as we see fit. That was kind of why 
A lot of our ancestors left Europe to come here to America to have freedom of worship. And over the last couple hundred years, America has drifted from its core Christian values. Would you agree with that? So when we say the world, or when we say the, the world view of, a, of, an, of our nation has kind of gone more to a secular progressive view opposed to more of a Christian view. Would you agree with that? Right? So things that today are acceptable 50, 60 years ago were not so acceptable. Would you agree with that? And that, it's getting lower here, all right? <clears throat> Would you agree with that? Sure, all right? <clears throat> and as a result of that, the knowledge of, Christian, uh, of Christianity and the teachings of the Bible is drifted. Would you agree with that? Right? There's less, there's less folks attending churches in America today, percentage-wise, than there was you know, 50, 60 years ago. Each year, uh, uh, church attendance in America is de- declining, and that's why we're a growing church, and there, there are some of those that are out there, but the vast majority of Christian churches are in decline, and attendance is dropping off and all that other kind of stuff. So, with that being said, when it comes to going and making disciples, we need to understand that where we start and sharing our faith and sharing what Jesus' love for them is different today than it was 40 years ago, 30 years ago, right? Right? Sure, because you, you could throw out things, you know, like you could talk about Jonah. Let, let me just tell you, and, and I'm one of them. I, I'm one of the people that I'm talking about today because I wasn't raised in the church. So when you throw out, you know, hey, Jonah and the whale, they think it's a ride at Disneyland, Okay? Seriously, right? So where you start at where the, the, where the folks are at is going to be different today than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. All right? So you got that? All right. With that being said, we almost have to go back all the way back to the first century when Jesus began to evangelize because that's really a closer context of what the world that we live in today is like uh, than it was 30 or 40, 50 years ago, all right? So when Jesus started his earthly ministry, there wasn't Christianity. In fact, there wasn't even the New Testament. They had no vacation Bible school to tell stories about the New Testament because the New Testament didn't even exist, right? And so where he started with the folks in the first century, is almost where we need to start in our life today as we minister to and as we reach a culture that is far from God when it comes to godly understanding and scriptural knowledge. Are you following me okay? So, if you have your programs or you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to start in Luke chapter 15. Remember several years ago, there was the whole thing about what would Jesus do? Remember that whole thing, wristbands and and T-shirts, and they had all, you know, what would Jesus do if he met Oprah or, you know, whatever it was. They had all these different ways of doing it. And so today I want to kind of do what would Jesus do in the first century, because how he would do it in the first century is how he would do it today in our culture. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 15, we're going to start in verse, in verse 1, all right? So you ready? 
Here's what he says. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners, right? So remember, in, in New Testament times with Christ, they actually had categories of sinners. So do we. Do you, you realize that? In fact, let me just throw this out. <clears throat> My sin is way worse than your sin. Would you agree with that? Sure. But, that, but that, isn't that how it works, right? If someone is doing something bad, you look at them and you use them as the grid, right? You're like, well, I'm not as near as bad as old Pastor Dan, so I'm pretty good, right? So my sin is like, it's like sin, but not really like sin. He's like a sinner, right? And I'm just like a sinner, and that's okay, right? So, so we have categories of sin, and so did they. So they had tax collectors, and so you work with the IRS, sorry. They had tax collectors that were actually lower than sinners, right? So you had like sinners, and then you had tax collectors, right? Some of you may be audited, and you know exactly what we're talking about right here. So anyway, so he's sitting around with tax collectors and sinners. And if we just hit pause for a moment, isn't it interesting that Jesus said, I've come to save those who are lost, and he hangs out with lost people. Isn't that interesting? So oftentimes, as believers, we don't do that, do we? Pretty quiet. <clears throat> so they're all gathered around, and they're hearing Christ teach, right? Verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right? So there's your religious people, right? They, what did they do? You ever hear someone mutter, right? You go, isn't that a horse that runs in the, in the mud? No, that, yeah, that's a different kind of thing. But when someone mutters, they whisper, but they want everyone to know. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, this place really stinks, right? And they, want, they whisper, but they want everyone to know exactly how they feel. So this is what the religious leaders are doing. They're, they're muttering, and here's what their criticism of Christ is. This man welcomes sinners, and it's not only does he say, hey, it's okay for them to be sinners, but he actually eats with them. He hangs out with folks who are sinners, right? He eats with them, and that was the criticism that the religious leaders had for Jesus. He hung out with the lowest of the low. He hung out with people who were outcasts, people who the, the normal citizens of the community would look at, and kind of turned their nose toward and kind of turn away because they were like just the worst of the worst. And so Jesus begins to teach a parable, okay? Now there are three metaphors that he uses, but it's one parable, all right? And we're going to walk through it, and then we're going to come back and see how the church is to, to, uh, how it is to function, all right? So you see in your little outline there, Jesus is going to tell us how he sees people who are far from God, all right? Remember, this is first century. This is when Christianity hadn't been invented yet. Christ hadn't, uh, you know, died on a cross and resurrected. There was no New Testament, and he is taking his disciples. He's teaching them and directing them, and so he's going to teach this parable. He's going to help them, the, the religious leaders, to understand, but more importantly, he's going to teach the disciples how you look at people who are far from God, all right? <clears throat> so here we go. Number one in your outline, Jesus, Jesus uses three metaphors or pictures to describe the condition of folks who are far from God. So letter A in your outline is he sees them as lost sheep, 
as lost sheep. You ready? All right. So here's what he says in verse 4. He says, suppose one of you, and we'll stop. In, in the original language, it, it, would, it would mean this. Which of you are willing to lose all of your savings today? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Right? See, everything, the question that he starts off with is, is framed in such a way in this culture where the answer was going to be a huge pushback. It was going to be none of us. Right? So he says, which of you, which of you would be willing, in, in his, he's going to use a, sh- a sheep term, but in our culture would be willing to lose your house, lose your finances, lose your job, lose your way of making a living. Which of you would be willing to do? So suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and you lose one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one lost sheep until he finds it? Verse 5. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, verse 6, and he goes home and he, call, and he calls his friends and his neighbors together and, he, and, and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Verse 7. I tell you in the same way that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Okay? So he uses the metaphor of a sheep. All right? Sheep are not very smart. Would you agree with that? Right? They're Actually, they're one of the dumbest animals that there are. Right? You got trained horses, trained cats, trained birds, trained dogs, trained husbands, right? Some of you. <laughs> Others of you are being worked on right now, right? But a trained sheep, I don't know if there's a market for them. You know, they're, they're probably not. They wander off. They're not very good at defending themselves. The fight or flight that most animals have, they're not that smart. Um, they're dependent on something. Even today, if you're traveling in the foothills and you see where uh, there's a herd of sheep, they're, they're, now they don't have the, the old sheep herder you know, walking in a tent. They have a little trailer that they kind of follow along if you ever go into, uh, into areas where there's a lot of uh, ranching going on. They're completely dependent. Sheep are not very smart, right? In fact, in, fact, in your outline, <clears throat> a person, and this is what, what Christ is going to teach us today, a person who is far from God lacks spiritual understanding that caused them to be weak in character and will. So let me just say it this way. Have you ever known someone who tried to quit a habit in their own strength? Doesn't work, does it? Right? To make changes in your flesh doesn't work. Because spiritually, there's no power. You don't have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in your life, and therefore, you're not able to to have the strength to overcome. Right? But he uses the idea of a sheep, and he's not saying that they're stupid intellectually. What he's saying is, from a spiritual standpoint, since they're not spiritually born again, they really don't have spiritual discernment. Therefore, they're weak in character and will. In fact, and Jesus says in Matthew uh, chapter 9, verse 36, as he looks at the crowd, he said, uh, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless. Well, how were they harassed and helpless? Well, they were like a sheep without a shepherd. Right? And actually that word uh, had compassion. It literally meant he was sick to his stomach. 
he was almost ready to lose his lunch as he looked at the crowd of people who were not spiritually fit, nor a, a group of people who had a spiritual shepherd to protect them and to guide them along, right? And so as we look into the world, remember, this is Jesus looking at people who are far from God, right? As he looks into the world, he sees them as lost sheep who are defensive, who are dependent on a shepherd, and they don't have a shepherd. They're they're just kind of out there. They're out struggling, they're out floundering, they're out trying to figure out what life is all about. So pause. When you look into our culture today, when you look into our culture today, I, I would, I'll say for myself, I oftentimes get more aggravated at the lack of spiritual understanding that the people have versus compassion and sick to my stomach how lost they are. You ever get disgusted? Stuff you hear about? Right? But do we have that compassion as we look at them and we look at the folks who are far from God? Do, do, do we look at them and we have, do we have that sickness to our stomach and how desperately they, they need a shepherd in their life to guide and direct them? <clears throat> Letter B. Jesus sees them as a lost coin. In verse 8 of Luke 15, he goes on and he says, Suppose a woman has ten uh, silver coins and she loses one of them. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? So again, remember, Jesus is explaining to them how he sees folks who are far from him in a spiritual sense. And 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 he says here, as he looks at them, he says, Hey, it's like a coin who is lost and therefore it's no longer in circulation. So it's the old thing that we'll say. If you have a nickel that sinks to the bottom of the ocean or a a million dollar gold bar that sinks to the bottom of the ocean, what value is it to you? They're both the same. They have no value. They have no value to you because you don't have possession of it. If you had possession of it, then it makes all the difference in the world. So a lost coin is out of circulation. It has no value. It, 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 has, no, it has no purpose in it. All right? So you see that in your outline? A person who's far from God has, uh, uh, lacks purpose. Now let's come back to the ten uh, silver coins. <clears throat> Scholars believe that when a woman in this culture would get married, that her husband wouldn't give her a wedding ring, would actually give her a headband. And the headband would have ten, silver, uh, ten coins with little holes in it, and they would be threaded around like a, a headband, and she would wear it. Right? And that was her way of... Um, basically being claimed. Remember, women at that time were somewhat property, right? So you would trade a goat and a pig for a woman to, the, to her, her family. So it was her, the way that the husband would say, hey, she belongs to me. And it was also a way for her to show respect to her husband. And so wealthier people would actually have their names engraved on the coins. And there would be ten coins. Now, seven is the perfect number in the Bible, Ten is the complete number in the Bible. And so she would have ten coins. If a woman was to have an affair on her husband, 
he would take one coin away from her. She would have nine. She wouldn't be complete. And she would still have to wear that because technically she's property of his. No one else can claim her, so to speak. And she would be kind of shunned in her community because as she walked around, people would look at her and she would have nine coins on her, band, uh, on her headband and they would look at her and they would recognize that she's unfaithful. She, she, she's unfaithful. And, and so when, when Jesus tells this, this story, this parable, and he talks about the lady sweeping the house and looking for her. I mean, you could imagine, right? Imagine that you're not guilty, right? It's one thing if you're guilty, right? But it's another thing if you're not guilty of it, and yet the community would look at you as if you were guilty, right? So she sweeps the house and she looks for it, and she's desperate to find it because obviously she, she finds herself in a bad position. But as Jesus paints the picture, he's painting the picture of the coins being lost because it's lost its purpose, right? She's, she's lost her purpose. The coin has lost her, uh, the, her purpose, uh, its purpose. Letter C is he sees them as a lost son. <clears throat> Verse 11 and following. And Jesus continues, and there was a man who had two sons, right? So remember, this is one parable with three metaphors. So some guys want to break it up. It actually all goes together. <clears throat> so there, there, was a, there was a man who had two sons, and the youngest one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, let's stop. <clears throat> In our culture, if you're very wealthy, you can give certain amounts of money to your, to your heirs and without tax implications and all that stuff. I don't have any wealthy family members, so I don't know what that's like. But, but there is some IRS things where you can do that. And a fam- somebody can give will money without having the, the, tax, the tax implications. In this day, that wasn't how it worked. All right. In this day, you would get your inheritance when your dad was dead. Right. So the son is saying to the father, give me my loot and basically drop dead. I'm done with you. I don't want to sit under your authority. I I don't want to have to hear you. I don't want to have to be connected to you. Just give me my inheritance. I'm cutting it. And I'm running. Give me my money. And so he asked them. So, I mean, imagine the insult the kid gives to his father. Give me the money, Dad. So the father divides his property between them. Verse 13. Not long after that, the young man got, uh, got together all that he had. And he set off to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. So I don't know what they partied like in first century, but I suppose it would be something like they partied like it was 1999. And Rick James came out. Some of you are like, who? Some of us old guys are like, yeah, he was cool, right? He had the purple suit. All right. Did he have a purple suit? No? Prince. I thought they were the same guy. (laughs) Lawrence Welk, purple suit, feather in a hat. Is that Billy Joel? Oh, I can't get it. I don't know. All right, here we go. Verse 14. (laughs) 
just keep digging, Dan. You're almost out. <clears throat> so after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. Right. So verse 15. So he went out. Uh, he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, and uh, who sent him to feed or to, to the fields to feed the pigs. Okay, just kind of pause right there. So here is a Jewish boy whose dad is perhaps a noble person, so he could have very well been a prince, right? So he was very wealthy, gets his dad's inheritance, sets off into a land where he's not going to be a citizen. He has no connections. He's not, hey, you know who my daddy is, right? He has none of that stuff. He goes in there, he spends all that he has, and then there's a severe famine in the land, all right? Now, there's a little understory here, a backstory that Jesus is trying to make. Part of it is, you can rely on your finances, you can rely on your 401k, you can rely on your company, you can rely on your, abil- your ability to, to make money, and in every case, you will fail. Because the Lord is the provider not your work, your ability, your savings account, your 401k, the economy. We live in America. Okay. Now, Jesus is the supplier, right? And as we looked at last week, and he uses your company, your 401k, your retirement to provide for you. But ultimately, he is the provider. So no matter how big of a pile of cash you have, there is very well a, a possibility that there's going to be a, a, a a depression in the land, right? And so there's a little backstory that he's kind of laying out for them to see. So he hires himself out to be uh, a person who's going to work and feed the pigs. So you could imagine the religious leaders. Jewish people don't eat pork, nor do they ranch pigs, all right? They're not pig farmers. So they would want nothing to do. This would be like, I mean, they would all go, ooh, you know, cooties, right? I got to go, right? And so he goes out, and he's working slopping pigs. And you could imagine the religious leaders just kind of going, oh, that's disgusting. Just, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. It's so, it's so discouraging and so depressing. Verse 16, and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, But no one gave him anything. And this is more than just a physical hunger. This is a spiritual hunger. This is a spiritual hunger that cannot be filled with finances that you may have or food that you may eat. That there's an emptiness in the heart and the soul of a person who's far from God. And they look for opportunities and, and things in order to fill it, but they never find that fulfillment in life. And so in your outline, a person who's far from God <clears throat> when it comes to the lost son is that they lack fulfillment, personal fulfillment in their life. So they're weak in character and will. They lack purpose, and they lack fulfillment in their life. Okay? Now, if you just pause, and some of you who came to Christ as adults, you would look back, and this is certainly for me, I would say I fit all three of those before I came to Christ. 
my, my goal was to be a millionaire by the time I was 30, and I was probably on my way to do that. Right? I wanted to fill my life with things because that's what purpose in the culture in which I grew up in, that's what it was. If you wanted to be somebody, you're going to be wealthy. Right? And, and so you have that. Yeah, I had no strength to overcome habits and hang-ups in my life. Right? I, I had no purpose other than to try to make all that I can, can it all I get, and hopefully by the time I was 35, I was going to sit on my can. Right? And that's the culture in which we live in. When you look out into our world today, in our culture today, that's, that's what it is. And so they try all kinds of things in order to find that fulfillment. They go from relationship to relationship to relationship, from job to job to job, from career to career to career, just trying to find fulfillment in their life because they have a huge hole, and it's a Jesus hole in their soul, and they try to fill it. Number two. So Jesus uses three metaphors to reveal the nature, and this is where we're going to start honing in on, the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As you sit here today and you think of your family, your friends who are far from God, how you reach them today is different than it was 20 and 30 years ago. It almost goes back to the first century to see how Christ reached that culture. Because we start out with, in, as the longer you're in church, the worse it is when it comes to sharing your faith to the world. We start off with this idea that everyone has this biblical knowledge. They don't. They don't have a clue. They don't know Paul, Peter, or Mary. They think they're a band. Ser- seriously. I mean, it, it is funny, but, but it, is, it is the truth. It is the truth. And so how we reach them and how we share our faith is different than it is. People say, we need to bring back revivals. Well, the whole idea of a revival was that you were reviving something that was once living. It isn't living. There is no revival. You can't can't restart something because the vast majority of the folks are far from God. Are we following okay? All right. So he uses three metaphors to reveal the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So letter A in your outline. We'll go real quick, so get your pencils ready. The seeking shepherd equals Jesus. John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, "I uh, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In Luke 19, 10, it says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those, those which were lost. And so the nature of the Son is to rescue. Okay, is to rescue. When you look at the ministry of Christ on earth, his primary responsibility was to rescue those that were, were lost. Okay? Letter B in your outline is the seeking woman is equals the Holy Spirit. Equals the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, it says, suppose a woman has ten coins, she loses one of them, what does she do? She Does she not light a lamp? And that is a picture of what we call in church, or a theological term, illumination. Right? If you come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have had to have the Holy Spirit 
illuminate your life that you're in need of a Savior. Are we tracking? Right? So when someone comes to Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit has been knocking at their door telling them that they're in need of a Savior. Right? The Holy Spirit's job is to illuminate. Jesus is to rescue, and the Holy Spirit is to illuminate their life in order to, to recognize that they're, uh, they're in need of a Savior. All right? So the nature of the, of the Holy Spirit is to reveal. And if you look at John 16 there, it says, I tell you the truth. He talks about the counselor coming and is going to convict the world of guilt or sin in their life. Letter C is the seeking Father equals God. And so you have the work of the, Holy, uh, of the Trinity in the saving of a person's life, a soul, spiritually speaking. You have the rescue of Christ, the reveal of the Holy Spirit, and you have the receiving of the Father in their life. Are we tracking okay? <clears throat> so the nature of the Father is to receive. Verse, uh, Luke 17, or, uh, 15, verse 17 says this. When he came to his senses, right? <clears throat> we all have friends and family that we pray that they would come to their senses. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. So he paints a picture of the condition in, in, in which he's in. Verse 18 he says, I will, set back, uh, I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say, and then he's going to practice what he's going to say to his father. And we're going to compare, compare him because it's interesting what takes place. He's going to say to his father as he's rehearsing in his mind, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he's rehearsing that as he's going to go back to his dad and he's going to try to win favor back with his dad. He is going to be happy just to be a hired servant. He recognizes that he got his inheritance, he's lost his authority, he's lost his position, and he's just saying, hey, give me a little food, and I'll be a servant, and I'll be completely content with that. Verse 20, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off this is a picture of how the trinity the father the son and the holy spirit sees people who are far off from god okay he he sees them he longs for them he recognizes that they have no fulfillment that they have no purpose that they're weak in character he sees them far off and look and, and watch and watch what he does his father saw him and was filled with what? Compassion for him. And he ran to his son to stop. Aristotle says of a Greek noble person, to run in public would be just absolutely unheard of, would be something that no one would accept. It would be... Uh, the, the noble person would be lowering themselves to a common peasant. A noble person doesn't run in public. So here's a picture of the father who takes off, runs through the community to receive his son, <clears throat> throws his arms around him, 
and kisses him. In the Greek, that word doesn't mean kiss, like one kiss on the cheek, like you have a family member who comes over and you welcome them and you kiss them on the cheek. This is a continuous kiss. This is a kiss, kiss, kiss. My grandma used to do that. My grandma, when I'd come home, she was hard of hearing. Both my grandfather and my uh, grandmother were both deaf mutes. And so when I would come, she would say, come here. And she'd kiss me. And she'd, she'd just kiss, 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 kiss. And they're like, grandma, leave me alone, right? I was like eight. You know, it's like, get away from me, lady. And, and so that's what that means, that she would, they, that he just latched on to his son, and he was just going to continuously kiss him. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What did he leave out from verse 18 and 19? Make me a servant. He left that out. He never got to it. And you want to know why he never got to it? He never got to it because in verse 22, his father cut him off. And he said, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Who would own the best robe? Father would. Father would. He, he's saying, run back to my closet, grab my best stuff and bring it to my son. Put a ring on his finger. Now, a ring would be like a legal document. That's what you would sign, you know. Uh, in that culture, if you were going to sign something legally, you, your family would have a sign or a symbol, and you would impress it into clay, and that was a legal document. And so when you had your, your family kind of sign, you were signing, and you were basically saying, my dad is the one that has the, the cash, and I'm signing kind of on his behalf. So to get the ring back, he's restoring him back to his position, his place of authority. And so he says, put the ring on his finger and his sandals on his, on his feet. <clears throat> then he says, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Not a goat, not a chicken, but a fatted calf. And he says, let's have a feast and celebrate. Why? What for? For my son, uh, for this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Okay, and I'll just hit a pause button. So the father wanted to kill the fatted calf because he didn't want to have a family party. He wanted to have a community party, right? In that culture, if a son was to disrespect his father, the whole community would shun him, right? They would all know that his son asked for his inheritance, said to his dad, hey, dad, I wish you were dead. And the community would kind of go, I can't believe that kid would do such a thing. So imagine this kid's coming back into the community. And imagine the neighborhood, maybe for some of you who grew up in like small communities where everybody knows everybody's business, right? You see the kid coming off and you could imagine everybody going, oh, there he is. That's the boy that disrespected his daddy. We don't like him. And the dad is saying to the community, no, 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 my son was, was dead. He's alive. He was lost. He's found. I've embraced him. Now I want all of you to come and celebrate with me. I want you to recognize that we're restoring him back to his position and, and his place of authority. All right. Now, the interesting thing is, and I missed this when we talked about um, 
him not saying the last part of the verse where he said, hey, hire me as a servant. In those days, if you were to surrender your authority or you were to bow to someone's authority, you would come to your knee and you would kiss their hand. That was a sign of submission, that you are, you are the authoritative figure. I'm a, I'm a peasant and I'm going to kiss your hand, right? We see that in some countries today, right? You'll see them kiss the hand of a leader, right? That's a sign of submission. The son never gets to that place because his dad doesn't allow him to get to that place. He holds him and he kisses him. And he never gets him, lets him get to a place where he surrenders to that condition. Number three. So here we go. <clears throat> the condition, the weakness, the lack of purpose and fulfillment of the person who is far from God and the nature, the rescuing, revealing, and receiving of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gives us, the church, a picture of what the church should be about when it comes to going into our community, into our world, to rescue, to, to reach a lost world for Christ. Okay, so here we go. You have to have the three components in your story of how you share your faith and how you minister to people who are far from God. Okay, so let's take a look. The first one is, <clears throat> we are two... Rescue people who are far from God. Okay? And let's just all just acknowledge right here that unbelievers act like unbelievers. They don't act like mature believers in Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because they're weak in character and will. And let's just get take it a step for, farther. And I am the classic example of it. Okay? When Tammy and I had been, I met her in eighth, she was in seventh grade, I was in eighth grade, right? There was a time before we came to Christ, and hopefully you guys will show up next week. Um, there was a time in our relationship after high school that we lived together before we were married, okay? I never knew it was wrong. I had no idea. I never knew the Bible said don't do that. Because that wasn't the culture and the context in which I was in. Later, I went through some issues, gave my life to Christ, and all of a sudden it was revealed to me, right, that that wasn't the right way that you begin to establish your relationship with, with, your, future's, uh, with your future spouse. And we separated our living arrangement, six months later got married. But in my culture, I didn't know it was wrong because I didn't have vacation Bible school. I didn't hear all the stories. We talked about Jesus, kind of. I said a prayer, now lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I shall die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Had no idea what it meant. Right? But in the culture in which we live in, we've got to recognize that folks have a context and a mindset that is going to be different than ours. And their choices... And their living situation is going to be different from ours. But they don't know. And if they don't know, we have to tell them, which leads us to number two. We have to reveal the truth in love. We have to reveal the truth in love. 
nothing makes me sadder in my spirit than when I hear a believer say, I just tell the truth. I just lay it down like it is. And I, I, in my heart, I cry. It's one thing to go after a believer who isn't living the way that they should. But to attack a non-believer and bash him in the head with the scripture, you can be 100% wrong and or 100% right and be dead wrong every time. You know what I'm saying? Right? So we have to reveal truth to them in love. Don't get hung up in the arguments. It's, it's a trap. Don't get hung up in the arguments. What's right? What's a marriage? What's this? What's that? It's, it's all a trap. Just keep pointing them back to Christ. Pointing them back to Christ. Pointing them back to Christ. Pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal to them the truth. Don't get an argument. It's a waste of time. In fact, you know that you know it's interesting? And I'm going to go way long. You know the scripture says that we have, we have no right to judge those outside of the church. We have every right to judge those inside the church. What? That says that? Yeah, it does. Right? Because the unbelievers are going to act like unbelievers. Well, why? Because they don't have a personal relationship with Christ. The third thing is this. You've got to receive them with grace. You've got to receive them with grace. Again, nothing breaks my spirit more than the Christian churches in today's world. We are known for, uh, we are known for what we're against, not what we're for. Right? And it's sad. And yes, we need to stand to truth. And, and, and I'm not saying that we invite that, you know, that kind of thing. Hey, let's just kind of go with whatever floats your boat's good for me. No. We, we hold on to truth. And we do not waver in it. But, but we, have to have, we have to have that grace in it in order to share. You will not get their ear to hear unless they know that you care for them. Right? And folks... This is the culture in which we're living. And some of you who are raised in church, you're sitting there and you're going, oh man, we're going to hell in a handbasket. The the culture is, the cultural shift is happening at such a fast pace with technology and stuff. It is really amazing what it is. The fastest growing faith in America today, you know what it's called? Nuns, not like a Catholic nun. Like they have no religion at all. It's the fastest growing faith in America today. Nuns. Right? So if we're going to make a difference in our culture, and we're going to be relevant in the 21st century and the 22nd century, we have to go back to how Christ approached the 1st century. To look at it and to make sure that we understand that we're rescuing those who are far from God We're revealing the truth to them in love, gentle. And we allow the Holy Spirit to work in their life. And we receive them with grace. They are not where they need to be. And let's just have a large confession right here. Nor are you, nor am I. I got a long way to go. They're not where they need to be. And the good news is God loves them so much. He desires to see them move from where they are to where they need to be. Right? 
And so as a, as when it comes to sharing your faith with your family and your friends, folks, you need to recognize that. You need to begin to internalize. It's a, it's a whole different shift that's taking place in our culture. Okay? So here's the next step, real quick. Way too long. Pastor, I thought you said you are going to do 30-minute messages. This is like way longer. I want my money back. All right. So here's some next steps for you guys. We have a couple opportunities from some mission trips, right? You might go to a foreign land, experience something completely different. Um, we have a uh, trip to Cambodia. I think we have one spot that's still available. And so if you're interested, and he's here today, I'm just going to have him. Dale, will you stand up? So this is Dale right here. So if you're interested, yeah, go, go ahead and clap. That's right, sit down. All right. So if you're interested in, I don't, now I'm going to have to, he's going to ask me to buy lunch from now on. So uh, if you're interested in the Cambodia trip, uh, there's one spot available, and that is March 17th through the 26th. And if you're interested in the Nicaragua trip, that's in September. But you can see him after the service, especially if it's a, you're interested in the Cambodia trip. All right? Step, that's next step one. Next step two in your outline is to sign up to be a part of the impact team. We're going to talk more about it. If you're a planner and a plotter, we're going to do some research of the community, find out some needs in the community, and then we're going to put a group together and uh, put together a program, to uh, uh, a project to go out and and make a, a difference in our community. And then last, and this is the one I want to highlight the most, you'll find a purple card. Is that purple? Okay, purple card. And here's what I want you to do. Easter is six weeks away. Got an Easter message for me? Here's what I want you to do. You have two cards. I want you to think of seven people that you're going to pray for, that you're going to invite to the Easter service. So we'll have three services. The times are at the bottom. Okay, you're going to invite to the service. Now, here's what I want you to do. On one card, just, you don't just write their first names, who those, who those seven people are. On the other card, you're going to write the same seven names on it. You're going to drop one of the cards in the offering bag, and I'm going to pray for those names for the next six weeks. All right? So I'm going to pray, and we're going to believe that the Holy Spirit's going to reveal truth to them. They're going to soften their heart. They're going to want to come to hear this little guy talk on Easter. All right? So, same names, I don't need last names, I don't need phone numbers, no emails, I'm just going to pray for their names, all right, and you can drop that in the offering bag. Okay with that? All right, I'm going to have 14 names. All right, here we go. Let's pray, guys. Lord, thank you.